There's only one person from either major political party that flipped a state legislative seat this year in Missouri, and that's Betsy Fogel, a Democrat who won a very, very tight race for a Springfield House seat. And now that the smoke's gone from that election, Fogel wants to focus on expanding Medicaid and broadening access to critical medical services. Fogel joins us next on the latest episode of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me via Zoom, she is the only person, Republican or Democrat, to flip a state legislative seat in the year 2020. Our special guest today is... Betsy Fogel. Thank you so much, Representative-elect Fogel, for joining us today. Before I pepper you with questions about your background and your priorities Give our listeners a sense of which district you are going to represent after 2021 starts and what is the geographic area it encompasses. So I am going to be representing House District 135, which is here in Springfield, Missouri, Greene County. I have Central East Springfield. So for those of you who are uh, familiar, um, I have roughly battlefield over to 65 north to Kearney and then west to national and then of course some weird cutout areas along the side um but for those of you not from green county just know that it's about one-fifth of the city of springfield a beautiful city in southwest missouri and also one of the economic engines of our state um so tell us a little bit about yourself tell us about your background and and what you were doing before you decided to enter this wild and wacky and crazy world of Missouri politics. So I'm born and raised here in Springfield, a proud graduate of Springfield Public Schools, did my undergrad at Missouri State University in the field of sociology, and then went down to the University of Arkansas. I was a hog for two years, got my master's uh, in the field of sociology as well. Right out of school, I got my first job at the Community Health Center here in Springfield. And to be honest, thought I'd work there for about six months to get something on my resume. Uh, but day one, I was hooked on public health and I've worked in public health ever since. The first few years of my career, I helped connect people of Southwest Missouri with food and insurance and housing and those kinds of things. And then over the last six years, I've had the opportunity to move into a position of leadership and now oversee some of our different clinical departments at the Community Health Center here in Springfield. How do you think, well, we're going to get into you, how you got elected in a minute, but how do you think that experience is going to translate into being a, a state legislator when healthcare is kind of an all-encompassing, vexing, and crucial issue? So when I decided to run for office, I wanted to run 
for two reasons, one of which being, I believe that all Missourians deserve access to quality and affordable health services, which again is what I've spent my professional career doing. And so I think taking that passion and that dedication and just that philosophy with me to Jefferson City will be really important to have people that are making and passing legislation that understand what it's like to have barriers to healthcare. Um, you know, we talk about healthcare in a lot of different ways and a lot of different perspectives in Jefferson City, um, but not often do we talk about it from the view of public health. And I think that that is a meaningful um, perspective that I'll be able to offer to my, my caucus and my uh, other elected officials. I've spent a lot of time driving through rural Missouri over this pandemic, primarily as a way to to visit our state parks, but also visit a lot of small towns that I, I've never been to before. And one of the things that has become painfully clear is in a lot of parts of rural Missouri in particular, um, there's just not a lot of access to health care of any kind. And I think that if you look at the economic decline of some parts of of rural Missouri, not necessarily Southwest Missouri, but I'm sure parts of Southwest Missouri, it does seem to go hand in hand with a lack of access to doctors or hospitals or clinics. Has that been your conclusion too, that the the, the lack of access to healthcare is also kind of an inhibitor to economic development in some parts of the state? Absolutely. And, you know, I would take it a step for further and say, uh, of course, medical care is important, but we also need to talk about behavioral health care, substance abuse services, even things like dental services. Going to the ER for dental pain is one of the top three reasons people use our ER, which is, of course, um, not the best use of those physicians time. So when we talk about medical care, I think it's also important to make sure we're mirroring that conversation with behavioral health care and oral health care as well. We'll be talking more about healthcare later in the show, but without further ado, I do want to talk about your recent election to this House seat. You were running against an incumbent, State Representative Steve Helms. Uh, my understanding is he used to be a county official, but I am old enough to remember when he ran for the legislature, I believe in 2006, and fell short then, and then ran a number of years later and was successful. Um, there used to be two Democrats that represented Springfield for a, a reasonably large amount of time, but that hasn't been the case in recent years. And I wanted you to talk about how this campaign trans transpired and how you think you were able to clinch the your party's uh, resurgence of having two Democratic state legislators in Greene County again. So I'll, I'll start this story back. Gosh, it's been 15, 16 months ago. Um, I lived in the 135th for, for several years and Representative Crystal Quaid uh, knew that I bought a house in the district, took me out to coffee and said, uh, I've been wanting to find a candidate to, want to run in the 135th and I think you're the person that can do it. We talked a little bit about the logistics of it and she said, you know, are you interested? She'll tell you that I took a few weeks to decide, uh, but I'll tell you I made up my mind in about 10 seconds and jumped in and decided that uh, running for office is the most meaningful thing that I could do at this point in my life. As we've already went over, I spent my life connecting our neighbors to healthcare, um, but when you have policy that makes that hard, it's difficult for places like my employer to do their job. So I just jumped in and started working really early on. Uh, thankfully, some people told me I was crazy, but I started knocking doors 
uh, last September and October. And, you know, people told me I was way too doing it way too early. But then, of course, March hit and I can no longer knock doors in good conscience. So I stopped knocking doors and our team transitioned uh, to phone banking only. So I'm really thankful that I decided to get up on those cold winter months and go talk to people in their homes and get to know their stories a little bit better. And um, so that kind of led me through uh, then COVID hit and everything changed, everything in everybody's world changed and our campaign kind of transitioned to a hub of resources. So we made calls for a few months, didn't talk about the campaign at all. We asked, can we help connect you to unemployment? Can we help connect you to Medicaid? All the things that I've done in my professional career. And I think that really resonated with people um, and then, of course, as, as summer came around, we had to start talking about the campaign a little bit more. Um, and then we, we finished strong going into the primary and then through the general. Um, but that's, in short, kind of what transpired me to run and then how I got to where I was in November. How much was the initial vote count before the recount? It was <laughs> the initial vote count was 34 votes. Oh, my goodness. And what was the final what was your final margin of victory? Uh, it was 76. Lucky number 76. Yes. So in a, a voting population of about uh, 17,000 to have the margin be less than 100 votes is pretty amazing. Uh, I guess when you win by 76 votes, you can pretty much ascribe your victory to anything like it was there like there was a wind gust and 76 people decided not to vote or it was really nice outside and 76 people decided to vote. Do you have any kind of do you think that it was your early months of, of going door to door that was decisive in this race? I think that I owe this uh, victory to my team and my dedicated volunteers of course, I'm so thankful that I was able to be successful in fundraising, and that helped a tremendous amount as well. Um, but I had a loyal team that showed up with me every single day to help me knock doors, help me make phone calls, write postcards. Um, and I, I have no doubt that that personal connection with the people in the 135th mattered, and people remember that when, the, when they headed to the ballot box. Um, and then I also think, I, or at least I hope, that the fact that me and my team decided to run a very positive campaign helped us in the long run. Um, for those of you who don't know, there was a lot of money poured into my district um, to spend on attack ads against me. And my team, uh, we never wanted to be that campaign. We never wanted to um, use that narrative, and we chose not to. And I think that that, in a year when there was so much negativity, I think people appreciated that that wasn't what we were trying to accomplish. We wanted to talk about us and our campaign and let the people decide who the best fit to represent them is. Back in uh, August, there was a vote on Medicaid expansion. And my understanding, and, 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 and August seems like 100,000 years ago, but my understanding is Greene County and St. Charles County both voted for Medicaid expansion. And Dave Weigel, who works for the Washington Post and is a an alum of Northwestern University, actually friends with a number of my wife's friends, tweeted out that he thought that St. Charles County was kind of going to be the next blue uh, conquering place of um, Missouri. And I quote tweeted him and saying, I actually think there's a better chance of Greene County being blue than St. Charles County, just because not necessarily because of your race, because there just seems to be a really well-organized contingent of Democrats there. Why do you think there has been this movement 
in Greene County, uh, which has long been seen as a Republican stronghold to being it's still Republican leaning, but it does seem like it's a lot more uh, fruitful for Democrats. What do you think is is causing the, the political shift there? So I, I preface all this by saying I have only truly been involved in county level or uh, state level politics in a formal capacity, you know, for the last year and a half. So my experiences, of course, are limited. Um, I think that Springfield is a changing culture and a changing place. Our local leadership and local representation has been very intentional about having conversations about inclusion, diversity, workforce development, economic development, but framing it through the perspectives that are more in line with democratic ideals. And I think that Springfield is on the cusp of changing because the people here want to see that change. We want to be a place where all feel welcomed. We want to be a place where our all students have access to great education. We want to be a place where no matter who you love or who you marry, you can be protected and you can thrive. And that's the Springfield that I want for myself and for future generations. And I think more and more people are moving here and staying here because they share that vision with me. When you are sworn in in January, you're going to be in the super minority. You're going to have to work with Republicans to get some of your ideas past the finish line. What are going to be some of the things you're going to really want to hunker down and work on when you're sworn in as a state legislator? So first and foremost, of course, Medicaid expansion implementation. Um, We already talked about how that was kind of the thing that got me going on this campaign in the first place. And I really want to be a part of the solution of making sure we're not only increasing the amount of people eligible for Medicaid, but that those individuals have access. Like you alluded to earlier in some of our rural areas, if there are no providers to see you, what does it matter if you have insurance? You have to be able to access those healthcare services. So I definitely want to be at the table there. Um, you know, here, if, if we're talking about Green County uh, specifically, I really look forward to working with my Republican counterparts. We all have a love for this community and we all want to see it thrive in our own way. Uh, we have several freshman Republicans that are in that will enter into uh, the legislature with me. And then, of course, the more senior Republicans. And I look forward to connecting with them and finding those pathways that we can agree on and carry across the line in Jeff City together. Well, let's stay on the topic of Medicaid expansion for a moment. And, and, I, and I alluded to this before, but just to be a little to, to provide a little bit more specificity. Missourians approved a amendment to the Missouri Constitution to expand Medicaid up to, I think, 138 percent of the federal poverty level. Missouri has had a very low eligibility rate since 2005, and that was the year that their legislature and Governor Matt Blunt signed off on some pretty drastic cuts to the program. So this was a I, I think that this was not a great year electorally for Democrats, but getting Medicaid expansion has been one of the biggest priorities for the party since 2005. But I also know that it's not just Democrats that wanted to see this, too. Hospitals had also been calling for it, as well as, you know, some Republicans, too. So how do you expect that entire situation to transpire, especially given that there has been this longstanding opposition to Medicaid expansion among Republicans saying it's too expensive. We need to, quote, reform the program before we expand. Now, I don't think they really have a choice. They have to expand. But what's kind of your expectation about how they're going to expand? So my expectation would be that when we talk about Medicaid expansion, we talk about it 
and we accomplish it in a way that's truly expansion of services, not looking at it from a, oh, we can expand here, but make cuts in this other area. I think the services that Medicaid currently provides are vitally important to our community, and it's important that we leave those on the table. I also think there's opportunity to improve efficiencies um, when we're talking about connecting people with healthcare services. So again, how do we connect the services to the people who need them? Is that through school-based clinics? Is that through more rural hospitals? Is that through uh, other mechanisms of taking the care to where the patients are, telehealth, teledentistry, those kinds of things. Um, So my expectation moving into the next year is having conversations across the aisle that allow us to do what we're there to do, which is expand Medicaid and do it in a way that helps the individuals that are now eligible to receive those services. We, we were talking with uh, outgoing state representative Kip Kendrick for a podcast that uh, should be up by the time this one airs. And he expects Republicans to put forth some sort of work requirement effort. It may have to be something that actually gets put on the ballot again. One thing that he mentioned that it is not out of the question that they would uh, put in this plan that voters would have to approve making Medicaid expansion subject to appropriation, which could allow the legislature to basically like stop Medicaid expansion in its tracks. I would I would imagine you wouldn't necessarily imagine you were, are not going to be for something like that. But from talking with either Democrats or if you've talked with any Republicans, is that an expectation of something that Democrats may have to actually push back against when they're having this conversation about Medicaid expansion? So again, I'll preface this by saying um, my time as an elected official is relatively new. So I haven't had the opportunity to connect with my across the aisle colleagues. Uh, And this may be naive and I may be taking this back in a few months if we ever sit down to talk again, but I have full faith uh, that I will be able to do my job, which is to convince people on both sides of the aisle that this is what we need to do. I think work requirements are uh, an ineffective way of helping our neighbors get healthcare access. And I, I will do my best to prove that point um, when given the opportunity. And I hope that my Republican counterparts will see that and be open and receptive to making sure we, we roll out Medicaid expansion swiftly and efficiently. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative-elect Betsy Fogel. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative-elect Betsy Fogel. She is a Democrat from Springfield. I want to get into a, another topic that has become a quasi-obsession for me over the last two or three years, and that's state legislative redistricting. Um, as many people know, Amendment 3 ended up passing somewhat narrowly uh, during the 2020 election, and that repealed the Clean Missouri state legislative redistricting system and created a completely new system that will have either commissions or more likely, as we'll get to in a minute, appellate judges draw state house and state senate districts. Um, I was talking with House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid about uh, the passage of Amendment 3, And the interesting thing to me that she said was her focus is not necessarily on Democrats getting a favorable map, because I think everybody kind of has conceded that even if there's some marginal improvement, that the maps are still going to be Republican leaning. Her focus is actually making sure that the, the, the standard toward counting people is total population, which means you count everybody 
and not the eligible voter standard that was talked about a lot during the campaign, where you may not, for example, count undocumented immigrants or children. Is that not to say that you and Leader Quaid have similar mindsets on things, but is that kind of what you're looking out for when the redistricting process happens next year for the state legislature? Are you going to be looking out for something else other than what I just mentioned? No, I think that's a great point. Um, so to tell kind of an anecdotal story, we were in freshman orientation this past week. So Republicans, Democrats alike were up in the Capitol. And one of the pieces of guidance that we got from one of our co-elected officials is if somebody ever comes to you and asks you to do something, the first question you should ask them is, what are other states doing? What other states have done this? And have, has it been successful there? We would be the only state in the history of the United States to ever count individuals this way. And to me, that's a huge red flag and something that we should all be very wary about. One thing that I, I think is worth noting is that it is not required under Amendment 3 to use the eligible voter standard. It is optional. Um, and one of the things that Leader Quay told me is there's going to be a, 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 a lot of a lot of like advocacy for the commissions, which are split evenly between Democrats and Republicans, are the appellate judges that that may get it if those uh, commissions deadlock to just use total population. Uh, given that the commissions, again, it would require like a Democrat to a Democratic member to agree to use anything other than total population. Are you confident that Missouri will just be able to do what every other state has done and, and just not go through with that standard that has a lot of Democratic groups up in alarm? Or do you do you have some fears that there may be a scenario where uh, eligible voter standard may be used? I do have some fears just because anytime the law changes or anytime there's an open door, of course, it makes those of us on one side of the door a little bit nervous to see what could potentially be on the other. I agree. Um, I'm hoping that the checks and balances are in place to make sure we never are in that situation. But the fact of the matter is that is an option now, and we should all um, treat it with the severity that it deserves. Well, I actually want to take a step back and, and talk about another issue that was top of mind for people during this election, and that's how they voted. There was an expansion of absentee balloting for this year only. Um in the sense that you could put down that you had gotten COVID-19 or you were susceptible for to it, and then you could get an absentee ballot and send it back without a notary. There was also a, a whole other system that was created, which allowed you to get an absentee ballot for any reason, but it required a notary and it required uh, it being sent through the mail. And there was a lot of commentary from both parties that that second option I just mentioned, which I have called the mail-in option, was clunky, unintuitive, and just not as useful as the traditional absentee method. As somebody who just went through an election, I'd be interested to hear what people in Springfield thought about the absentee process and if if, if they want the it to change after 2021, because the system I just mentioned is probably going away, but there may be discussions about changing the absentee process further. So I'd be interested in what you heard from voters on this particular subject? So as you probably know, um, as an elected official, we spend, or as a candidate, we spend the last portion of our campaign season in what we call get out the vote. So we are connecting with voters to making sure they know when, where, and how to vote safely, especially this year, we emphasize the safely part. 
And overwhelmingly, what I heard from voters um, in my district is that they want the option of voting safely moving forward and that we need to expand our capabilities of absentee ballot uh, voting. And I think, um, you know, that, of course, came to light in lieu of COVID-19, and that will carry forward with us in years to come. But there are also a lot of other reasons that people want to be able to vote in a little bit more fluid setting. And I, I think that that is something that other states have done uh, more proactively than us and something that I hope we as a legislature decide to do moving forward. I do want to take this opportunity to um, say thank you to the Green County Clerk's Office here in Springfield. I think they did everything they could to ensure uh, safe and uh, equitable voting patterns. And then, of course, during the recount to make sure that everything was handled the way it should. Um, but from a local level, I do think our local leadership did what they could um, to make voting accessible to all uh, even setting up a, a COVID positive voting location on the day of the election. Um, and those things don't go unnoticed by me or by the voters. And by the way, the uh, Green County Clerk is Shane Scholler. He was actually on this podcast with Boone County Clerk Brianna Lennon talking about voting during COVID earlier this year. So just to get a little bit more specific, would you be in favor of just creating an absentee ballot system where you could request it for any reason, you get rid of the excuses, uh, you could mail it back, you could drop it off, you could go vote in person for any reason. Absolutely, yes. I think we need to do everything we can um, to make sure that individuals have the ability to vote safely and to vote um, at a time that is convenient to them. And I think no excuse absentee voting is the way that our state needs to go. Did any voters tell you that they had any issues with the notary requirement for uh, a not only the mail-in option, but there are some excuses for absentee that require a notary. It would not surprise me that if uh, Republicans that control the legislature decided to go no excuse absentee, they would keep the notary requirement because in their view, they see it as a way to prevent against, uh, I guess, voter fraud or identity fraud. What did people tell you about the notary requirement? And and would you be in favor of keeping that requirement under a no absent, no excuse absentee system that we just described? I would say the word I would use to describe how people felt about the notary requirement would be confusing. We had a lot of people call our campaign and ask questions. A lot of people that called our county party office to ask questions about who needs a notary, who doesn't. Um, what excuses do and don't, I would be in favor of eliminating the notary component. I mean, if you think about the reason why we went to absentee ballot or absentee voting this year is to limit the contact that we had with one another, but we all, but knowing that getting something notarized required um, interaction with, with one another. So I think it was counterintuitive to the initial point of uh, loosening our absentee voting um, and then, yeah, uh, moving forward, I think that we should we should eliminate the the notary requirement if we're moving towards a no excuse absentee voting. In the last couple minutes, I, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about COVID nineteen and some of the policy proposals you would like to see implemented. I mean, I was thinking about this because we are nearing the end of the year, and I don't think there's any question that the biggest story of of all of the all of us as journalists is going to be the COVID nineteen pandemic, whether it be a political story, a healthcare story, a social story, even like a music story. Uh, 
it's still going to be an issue in 2021, even with the vaccines coming out. What would you what would you want to do from a legislative standpoint on that issue? Even though I know and I'm sure that you know that it, this is really a gu- gubernatorial responsibility and the, and Governor Parson is going to continue to make most of the decisions. But the legislature can pass statutes and can make policy changes. What's kind of your view on that point? To me, and I know you hear this all the time, we all hear it all the time. To me, the biggest thing we need to be doing right now is a statewide mask mandate. And I work in public health and I see every single day what happens when individuals become sick. And that's not something I wish for anybody else. So I I wish that we had a governor who would have stepped up several months ago and uh, initiated a statewide mask mandate, but it's not too late. It'd, it'd be better to do it now than to not do it at all. Our local leadership in our hospital systems down here in Greene County and in, in Springfield specifically have been very vocal about their desire for a statewide mask mandate. Our hospitals are full. We're diverting patients away from our ERs because we don't have beds for them. This is the reality that we're living in. And I understand personal freedom and I understand not wanting um your elected officials to regulate what you what you have to wear. Uh, but at the end of the day, we have got to do something differently. So that would be, of course, my number one wish is that we would push for a statewide mask mandate. And then, of course, um, moving away from that, continuing to support our workers, continuing to support our our first responders, continuing to support our essential workers, making sure that they have access to health care, making sure that they have paid leave, making sure that they have unemployment when they need it. Um, making sure that they have the protections that they need and deserve because they're the the true heroes and the ones making sure that our economy and our society continue to function. And I think that there are some areas of policy reform that we could do to make sure that those things happened. Do you think that a mask mandate could be effectively enforced? And I, I've mentioned this on other shows, and this is anecdotal, but when I, I made my aforementioned travels around rural Missouri, I've seen very few people wearing masks, A lot of these smaller towns are very far apart from one another, and these counties do not have unlimited amounts of people in their health departments to enforce mask mandates. What confidence are you at this point that a mask mandate would actually be able to be enforced, especially in rural Missouri, which I'm mentioning because that seems to be where the biggest outbreaks are coming from right now? So I think I'm going to answer this question maybe a little bit differently than you would expect. But as an elected official, my obligation is to listen to experts in their field and make sure that their voices are heard in Jefferson City. Again, I will refer to local hospital leadership here in Greene County. We they are are begging and pleading for a statewide mask mandate. And in some of those rural areas that you're talking about, those are the same patients that end up in my ERs here in Springfield because there aren't hospital systems there. And I understand, you know, the last thing I would want to do is to add pressure to public health workers and health departments across the state. But I think leadership goes a long way. And I think if something is modeled, if behavior is modeled from our governor and from other elected officials, that in and of itself is worthy and will encourage people to wear masks. And then just knowing that they will, people could potentially be held accountable for not wearing them. Um, You know, here in Springfield, if I go out and see somebody in the grocery store not wearing a mask, I know what my options are. I can address it with them one-on-one. I can report it to the store. I can call 911. Not to say I do those things, but I know that I have options. 
um, whenever I was in the Capitol this week and my Republican counterparts were not wearing masks, I did not have those options because they don't have to. So I think that a statewide mask mandate, though not maybe perfect, is still a necessary first uh, step. Do you also expect there to be like a budgetary? I don't know if you're going to be on the budget committee, but I have to imagine that even into next year, COVID-19 is going to have a pretty big effect on state finances and what can be done, especially if there is not a like a stimulus package that helps states. Are you kind of hoping that the, you know, the incoming Biden administration maybe addresses that point so legislators like you don't have to necessarily make extremely tough decisions on what to cut because the state's revenue has been less than what's expected because of COVID? Yes. Um, of course, that would be the ideal situation is that we have some federal aid. Um, but you're exactly right. We all know that going into the next year, we're, we're all going to be faced with tough decisions and faced with not, not easy decisions to figure out what to cut. If we have to cut something, what do you fund? Uh, where do you pull those dollars from? And I, to your point earlier, uh, of course, we don't know what committees we're going to be on, but I hope to serve on the budget committee um, because I want to have a say in exactly what we're talking about now. We need people at the table when we're looking at budget cuts to make sure we're not cutting all of our children's division workers who is going to protect those children or that we're not cutting transportation for our public schools. How are those children going to get to school? Um, so I do, I do hope to have a seat at the table and, and do my part to ensure a fair and balanced budget. Well, Representative-elect Fogel, thank you so much for joining us on Politically Speaking. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How could people follow you either on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? My Twitter is at Fogel number four M-O, so at Fogel for Mo. My Facebook is uh, Fogel for Missouri, so I'd love for you to follow me there. And then, you know, I have an Instagram. And uh, most importantly, if anybody's listening to the show and has any suggestions for any of the topics that we talked about or any other views um, that you'd like me to know as an elected official, I'd love to hear from you on my email. And that email is Betsy, B-E-T-S-Y, at Fogel4Mo.com. So Betsy at Fogel4Mo.com. You have selected many places on the World Wide Web in order for people to learn more about you. So can, you're, you're off to a good start in Missouri politics. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long. 